All right, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study, Continuing the Life of Christ. Last time we were together, we went over the parable of the unjust steward. Let's move on now to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 31. The Bible states, um, let's actually, yeah, look verse 14. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Obviously, Christ is not saying that whatever people look on as awesome, God looks on as an abomination, but he is stating that when you seek to gain the approval of men, you are very unlikely going to gain the approval of God. Why? Those who are walking away from God will not be on the same page with God on what God claims to be right versus wrong. The world has a different opinion about many things than God. You can't please both. It's just not possible. Christ in another passage states you can serve God, you can serve mammon. Mammon being the, the, uh, the money and everything that's attached to money that the world wants to throw your way if you follow their path, take their journey. You can't do both, though. There, there's no such thing as riding the fence. You can't be neutral. We are in a spiritual warfare. You are either with Christ or you are against Christ. And to be on the side of Christ is going to gain the disdain of the world. To gain the glory of the world, you are not going to be running to Christ. Now, are there people in the world that will honor and encourage and uplift those who follow Christ? Of course there are. I I would hope that is always the case. But that's not what Christ is saying. He's not saying, for those of you who seek to uh, follow me, you, you, you can't gain the, dis, the, the, the encouragement of anyone. He's talking about, again, this idea that the religious leaders aren't actually in a relationship with God. The religious leaders are playing a game. The religious leaders want the approval of the community, not even those who are necessarily committed to religion themselves. Not even those guaranteed to even care about, at this time, Judaism. The religious leaders wanted to be liked. Now that is a problem I think we can all sympathize with. The desire to be liked. Now it may not be as deep in your heart as the Pharisees, may not be as big of a problem for you as it is for maybe someone else, but to a degree, you know, we all want to be liked by someone. I'm not saying everyone, but there are people in our lives that we want to be accepted by. We want, to be a, we want their approval The danger is when you want their approval over God's approval. The danger is when you're willing to trade your relationship with God to be liked by someone else. I love it when you get both. I truly do love it when I I chase God, I love God, and I'm able to, to gain connections with people that are also chasing God and loving God. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. There are times where even those who go to church, I'm not saying this church, I'm just saying churches, those who, who are Christians, those who call themselves Christians, that they will not agree with you on some pretty major decisions. I have had countless conversations in reference to abortion, the LGBTQ plus movement, uh, just to name a, a couple of conversations where you would think Christians would you be united. You would think those who read the Word of God, know the Word of God, would value human life and a biblical morality. You would expect that someone who worships God on a regular basis and claims that the Bible is the word of God, you would expect that these major issues, we'd be on the same page. Oh, so many conversations I've had with people who claim to be religious, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be followers of Christ, who are not even close to the standard that I believe God's word has, not even close to the belief system that I follow. And they are, what I would say, I would say um, not kind in the way they portray their disagreement with me when it comes to that. It comes to abortion and my view of abortion and the fact that the unborn deserve life just as anyone else. The unborn are also victims of rape and incest, and therefore their life should not be ended for those two reasons. 
Uh, it, it's, it's mind-boggling how Christians will state, oh, yes, I believe that every life uh, is, is protected by God. I'm pro-life, except for the cases of it. And they'll often mention three, rape, incest, and the health of the mother. Well, if you say life is life, and if the unborn child is indeed alive and a human being and has a soul attached to them, then you can't claim that it's okay to take their life for something they didn't do. They are a victim as much as the woman is a victim. If you want to take a life, let's talk about the consequences of the rapist. Let's talk about harsher penalties on those who are the criminal, not harsher penalties on the unborn victim. But so many Christians would, would severely disagree, let me put it that way, that I've spoken to that I believe, I do believe love God. I believe they love the word of God. I think that they are confused. They've been deceived. They're not fully informed on what is actually happening when it comes to life in the womb and when it comes to abortion. And so in their lack of information, lack of desire to be informed, they, they're almost hostile to other believers. You can't always, you can't always have the approval even of Christians when you stand on the truth of God's word. I am concerned that is going to be more so the case as time goes on, not less. I'm convinced that the generation of students that we're teaching here at Mid-State, my children, as they get older, they will have less praise from humanity than even we do now, which isn't much. They will have less approval from even their Christian friends than we do now, which isn't much, if they continue standing on the same truths that we stand on today. Well, these religious leaders claimed to love truth, but actually what they loved was the glory man showed them. Christ talks about that glory, and he says in another passage, if that's what you're after, that's what you'll get. You'll receive it here, but don't expect to be rewarded in heaven. Your reward is now. If you're living life, and, and even in a full-time ministry, if your desire is to be praised by man, well, for certain, you'll get it. There, you, you can surround yourself with the right kind of people that will always praise your name, worship you. Pastors, deacons, trustees, doesn't matter. Outside of, of church, uh, in businesses and nonprofits, oh, there's plenty of people who are willing to praise you if you tell them the right things, pay them enough, do the right things, oh, yeah, someone will praise you. But if that's what you're living for, then that's what you're going to get. I had decided a long time ago, I don't want the praise of man. When I was younger, it, it uh, definitely was something that made me feel good. There was people that would praise me for something that I would do or accomplish. I remember year, before I came here, years ago, I was in a different church, and I would get the opportunity to preach occasionally. I wasn't the lead pastor. wasn't even the assistant pastor. I was the youth pastor. I worked with the children and the teens. So occasionally I got to preach. I remember every time that I preached, which wasn't often, uh, an elderly woman at the end of the message would come up to me and say almost the same exact thing. I loved your message. That was so great. Thank you. Something like, it's, it's 10 years ago. Something like that was said. You know, complimenting me on the message and saying how much she appreciated in some way or another. But she almost, it was almost just verbatim. The same statement was made the, the, the handful of times that I would preach throughout the year. The first few times I heard it, I thought, wow, you know, God's really using me. That's amazing. Then it began to dawn on me. She's like the only one saying it, and she says the same thing every time. I'm not so convinced it's sincere. And I almost got to the point where I dreaded her saying it because it was a reminder that she's probably just saying it to be nice because no one else is telling me this. And it was it was it, it ceased to uplift me and actually started to discourage me. And my point is, there will be people who will praise you. It doesn't mean it's sincere. It could be empty. They could have their own motivations for praising you. And if you're looking for it, you'll find it. My encouragement is, don't look for it. Don't seek it. When I was younger, I did like it. But I realized what it was doing to me, it was making me prideful. And then when I didn't get it, I was getting discouraged. So I decided years ago that I just need to stop worrying about what people say about me, to me, one way or the other, and ask myself, am I doing what God has called me to do? Am I doing it to the best of the ability he's given me? Am I doing it through his power, not mine? Am I doing it out of love? Am I doing it through truth? Then... It doesn't matter to me what people say or don't say, what people recognize or don't recognize. 
And uh, what really matters to me is what God believes. And I can't know for certain what God would say about Russ, but I can know what his word says, and I'm striving for that. In verse 17, he says, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Now, he's referring to verse 16 when he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached. Every man presseth into it. But then he goes into verse 17 and says, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle, one small iota, one small part of the law to fail, to fall. He, he's on one side saying, so the law had its place, and now I'm here. And now we have the kingdom of God, and, 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 and what the Bible, you know, an age of grace, right? Not, not that it uh, necessarily replaces the Old Testament, because Christ said he's here to fulfill the law. Christ was not a replacement of it. He was a, he was a completion of it, and then a, a new era was beginning. But even in the new era, the Old Testament law still has a place, Not as uh, severe as it did in the Old Testament, but there is still value to the Old Testament law in that we can see the heart of God. We can see what God views as moral conduct. We can see just how difficult it would be to attain righteousness on our own, not just difficult, impossible. Even the apostles in their meetings in the book of Acts state, it just can't be done. We ourselves can't be fully righteous following the law as a Jew. How can we expect the Gentiles to do what we cannot do? The law has its place. And that's why the next verse speaks of the law as not falling away, not failing, not being destroyed, even though it was completed in Christ. Verse 18, whosoever putteth away his wife, marrieth another, committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband, committeth adultery. Now, what an odd thing to say. What an odd statement to insert here, which, by the way, the next statement, verse 19, is really what I want to talk about. A certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Why would Christ place this small statement about marriage sandwiched in between the Pharisees and and, uh, addressing their desire and their need to be approved by man and the rich man and Lazarus? I can't tell you that I know for certain. It is an interesting phenomenon. There are other passages where Christ deals with marriage and divorce. There's other passages where the Apostle Paul deals with marriage and divorce, and even on a deeper level than this simple single statement. I do want to say this. Since it's dealt with, let's address it. It is dangerous to create an entire theology, belief system, off of one verse. You always want to make sure you have the full counsel of God when it comes to Matters that impact your life in severe ways. And this is definitely one of them. I knew of a man one time who did believe that any reason for divorce at all was wrong. And then he believed on top of that to get remarried after divorce. There is no reason that would ever be acceptable. This man believed it so much that unfortunately for him, his wife did leave him divorced him, not his choice, hers. I don't know the full story of why she left him. I just know that she left him. And for his entire adult life, he never got remarried. It was stated by him he was lonely. In his older years, was lonely. And part of him wished he had gotten married, but his, his belief, his conscience was, was, was so strong in this area, he could not move himself to that. Now listen, if Indeed, the Bible states that it is sin to not get married after a divorce, then that man did the right thing. But if there are other passages in the Old and New Testament that give a broader view of what that looks like and how God's heart does offer mercy and grace for a new opportunity, then that man, unfortunately, spent his entire adult life, well, much, much of his adult life, in unnecessary loneliness and pain. Why? Because of statements that were given to him by those who believed what was given to them, by those who believed what was given to them. It's called tradition. Passed from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And many of these preachers who teach divorce is wrong at all times, 
Remarriage at any time would be wrong. Many of them are saying this only because they were told it, but they don't actually have to put their truth on the line because they're not divorced. They're not remarried. They don't have to test their truth against the reality of life, nor do they they even test it against the broader counsel of God's word. They're not pushed to do that because they're married. Their wife didn't leave them. I have found that on occasion there are men, not all the time, but there are pastors who preach very hard against divorce until their wife leaves them. Then and only then do they reevaluate Scripture and then say, what does the Bible actually say? Now that my wife has left me, who? Hmm, let me now discover what the Bible says in the broader council. Now they will read books from the other side. Now they will read commentaries from the opposing view to see if they've missed something. And then some have discovered, oh, you know what? I did miss something. Oh, man, all those years. I preached against divorce in all forms. And now that I've been confronted with it, I've discovered there are other passages of Scripture that I wasn't fully aware of, didn't fully evaluate. And now, in some cases, divorce is okay. And in some cases, remarriage is okay. What a shame that these preachers who aren't confronted with the reality of that truth because they never get divorced just keep parroting what is told them. Now, having said that, obviously, God is not pro-divorce. That's very clear. He has said that here. He has said that in the book of Matthew. We find in more than one occasion where God's heart is given regarding marriage, and he says One man, one woman, they leave their father and their mother, they cleave to each other, and they create a new life together. That is God's heart. That is what God desires. In the book of Matthew, Christ informs his followers that divorce was allowed in the Old Testament on a broad scale. It actually was pretty easy to get a divorce in the Old Testament. He just had to write a letter of divorcement, basically sign the papers, and it's done. He says, I allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. That still doesn't mean that God's, you know, thumbs up with it. Hey, smiling, this is great. I'm glad it worked out for you. You know, try again. It doesn't mean that God's thrilled about it. But God, in his infinite wisdom, understands he's working with humanity. (laughs) He's working with people who have issues. He's working with people who are married to people who have issues. And God, I don't believe, and and I don't believe this not because I feel it or experience it. I don't believe it because I have studied both sides in depth. I've studied Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, in depth. And what I see is a heart of God that over and over and over again gives his followers a chance at a new beginning. Over again. You say, well, those who are divorced, you know, well, they just need to, you know, deal with the consequences of their choices. Look, if that was the God we serve, then explain to me the book of Judges. Over and again, God allowing the Israelites to make mistakes, come back, try again. Explain to me the, the, my, the, the major and minor prophets where God is constantly saying, you've messed up, but let's try again. Even when they're exiled, you messed up. At 70 years, I'm going to bring you back and let you start over again. Explain to me the, in the entire New Testament that is just full of grace. That is not the God we serve, where it's you messed up, you can't come back. You messed up, you have no happiness. You messed up, this is the end. That's not the God I see. On a practical side, this is not a message on divorce and remarriage. I have preached that message on more than one occasion. You can find that online, at our website, on our Facebook page, uh, on Sermon Audio. Just go to our Meriden Hills and type in marriage and divorce, and you can see one of, at least one, if not multiple messages. I don't know if they've all been recorded over the years. I know there's at least one that's been recorded that gives in detail the research I've done on marriage and divorce and have given it to our church. But let's get back to why is Christ mentioning it here? I can't know. But what was the previous passages dealing with? The previous passages were dealing with the Pharisees desiring the approval of man over what was right. It seems that in many cases, the Pharisees were changing the law, whether to get money under the table, the approval of their fellow citizens, to feel better about themselves. They, they basically saw themselves as having the authority to change the law, and it was as equally divine, 
even if they changed it. Uh, on one passage, we read where Christ reprimands the Pharisees, and it says, here you guys claim that, you know, you should live righteously, and yet you tell someone that if they have elderly parents, and they give money, I'm paraphrasing to explain what's happening, if they give money to the temple, if they tithe or, or, or an offering, a major offering, they are relieved from the responsibility of taking care of their elderly parents. That basically the Pharisees had created a law where you are obligated to care for your elderly parents, but you could basically buy your way out. <laughs> but how do you buy your way out? Well, you buy it by you know, purchasing our approval, giving us money, and that allows you to no longer need to care for your elderly parents. So the Pharisees are creating laws that go against and contradict the Old Testament. And maybe Christ is mentioning this because the Pharisees were messing with the marriage and divorce as well. Because after reprimanding the Pharisees saying, you want the approval man, the, the one law that he gives and deals with harshly is marriage and divorce. So I can't know. I wasn't there. But that's my best guess. That he was dealing with men who were making divorce even easier, you might say, than the Old Testament allowed. Making it more acceptable than even the Old Testament allowed. Making it not a big deal at all. Look, I understand sometimes people have to get divorced. It's still a big deal. There, there is hurt. There is harm. There is long-term consequences. I get sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I understand that. But let's not pretend that it's not hurtful. Let's not pretend it doesn't come with consequences. And so it's possible these Pharisees were trying to eliminate all that for the reasons Christ mentioned, the approval of man. Then he goes into the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So I have a question for you. This story, is it a parable? A parable is a story that is created to illustrate a spiritual truth. Or is it an actual story of real events? I was confronted with that question many years ago. I had always assumed it was just a parable. I assumed it because it kind of fell in line uh, with other passages surrounding it, like we looked at last week, where there are other parables. So it wasn't exactly following another parable. There were some statements in between, but close enough, where I just assumed parable, parable, statement, parable. That was my thoughts. It also seemed to kind of follow the pattern of how Christ often told his parables. He doesn't seem to hear clarify that now I'm stepping away from parables. Let me tell you of, of, of real events. So I was confronted with that question, and I didn't really know the answer, but there was a statement made that caused me to consider very strongly this is not a parable. So at this point in my ministry, I would say if I was forced to an conclusion, I would state it's not a parable based off of what I'm about to tell you. doesn't mean I know dogmatically. It could still very well be a parable. Either way, the truth is the same. But here's why I believe now it may not be a parable. When you look at all the parables, names aren't given. It is always a general description. The father, the son, the husband, the wife, the shepherd, the sheep. The house owner, the builder, the king, descriptions, general, not names. In this one, a name is given. Lazarus, the poor man. Now, if this is a real story, then why isn't the rich man's name given? Well, if it's the story, who wants to hear the story of their own relative described in this way? It might be hard to determine who this rich man was, even if you lived in the same town as him, if only the poor man's name is given. Because most people wouldn't know this poor guy's name. He's of no consequence. He's treated worse than an animal. So, giving his name doesn't necessarily point the finger at who the rich man is. But once you give the name of the rich man, all of those who have relatives that have died with that name might put the pieces together and ask themselves, is that my brother? Is that my father? Is that my husband? Is that my son? And I believe Christ, in his grace, doesn't want to cause that kind of turmoil in the lives of those who might be related to this guy. So, what's the practical application of that? The practical application really only stands if this is a true story. If it's a parable, then the application I'm giving you doesn't really match. You can't really use it too strongly. But with my belief that this is a true story, here's the application. 
What good is there in telling someone who lost a loved one that their loved one is in hell? To make that statement dogmatically, without any um, possibility that your guess could be wrong. Well, I knew the person. Reprobate sinner that they were, there's no way they could be saved. They never went to church. They never confessed Christ to me. They never even got baptized. How could they be saved? They're for certain in hell. Now, nowhere in God's word does it require their confession to you to be saved. Church attendance is not a requirement for salvation. And there are plenty of Christians in both Old and New Testament who made some really, really poor choices, not once, but throughout their life. I am not stating that anyone and everyone is saved. Obviously, salvation is only on those who, through faith, have accepted Christ as their Savior. Repentance has evolved at least to the level where they recognize they're a sinner and recognize Christ as a Savior at that basic level. And that is obviously not everyone. And there are obviously people going to hell. Christ said, broad is the path to destruction. We're told in Revelation about the uh, many that will be judged and sent to the lake of fire for eternity. So I know people are going to hell. I never, even when I was young, ever felt it was required of me, necessary or even helpful, for me to verbally state that someone's dead relative was in hell. I don't know their heart. I don't know their history. And I'm so very glad it's not my responsibility to know. I'm not shirking my responsibility. God never gave me that authority. So why would I speak authoritatively on a matter of which I have no authority over or ability to know for certain what is going on? All I can do is cause harm and hurt. Having said that, there is value of speaking about heaven and truth to those who've lost a loved one. You don't have to state their loved one's going to hell. Let me tell you how you don't go to hell. You could still talk about heaven and truth at a time in their life where they're now considering these things because they lost a loved one. And I try to do that as subtly as I can without referring to where their loved one might be. Because here's the truth. Most people, they want to believe their lost loved ones in heaven, and so they just state that even though it's light, very unlikely to be true. It's not my place to tell them yes or no, but it is most definitely my place to take any opportunity God gives me to point them to the truth. His name is Christ and how they can be with him forever in heaven. So Christ, in his graciousness here, doesn't mention the rich man's name. Why cause that turmoil in the family? But he is going to give them truth. So you know the story, right? This Poor man is at the house of the rich man. We're told that he lays at the gate full of sores. Verse 21, he desires to be fed with what? Crumbs. This poor man has nothing. So much nothing that he is overjoyed when the scraps are left outside for him. Whether on purpose or not, the rich man takes his food and wipes it into some type of bowl, and the servants in the house maybe feel bad for the poor man, put it in a location where he can have. Maybe they take the bowl to him. The scraps from the table are allowed to be eaten by the poor man. Maybe it's thrown in some type of garbage container accessible to the poor man. We don't know how, but this poor man finds joy in the crumbs, the scraps, the leftovers of the rich man's meal. This is not the rich man being gracious to the poor man. This is not the rich man giving of his abundance. This is the rich man saying, well, I wasn't going to eat that anyway, so the dog's going to have it. You can have it. I don't care. It can go on the ground. It doesn't matter to me. Just get it out of the house. And this poor man was so bad off, that made him happy to get it. When I was younger, I would read passages like this, other passages where Christ talks about taking care of the poor. And I was greatly disturbed by how little compassion it seemed to me that God's church had for the poor. I'm talking 21, 22, 25, you know, pretty young. I had not really dealt a lot with those who find themselves homeless. I had not had a lot of experience. I just read these passages, and it bothered me that the church wasn't doing more for the poor. 
I would ask the pastors that I knew, hey, so what's, what do we have? What's, what, do, what does our church have set up for, to help people that are poor? And the question was often, well, you know, they'll call, and if, if, I, if I deem it valuable or necessary, we'll, we'll help them. But there's nothing really set up, and we don't usually do it often. Some of the pastors will say, we don't do anything. You know, there's other programs, other nonprofits that are out there that do that kind of thing. We don't do anything at all. That bothered me a lot, so much so on more than one occasion. This was before this church in my 20s. Uh, people would call often asking for assistance. I already knew, because I'd asked the pastor, what can we do? And the pastor would say, well, either we don't do anything or we evaluate. And I, I just knew that the church didn't really have anything set up for their own reasons. And so often, I would meet the person and give them money myself out of my own pocket. They would say, I just need gas. I'd say, hey, there's a gas station up the road. Let's go. I'll meet you there, and I'll give you gas. I need food. All right, I'll get you some food. I need, I need to buy something. And I'd give them 50 bucks or 20 bucks on a regular basis. You know what I discovered? Because I answered the phones. We had office hours, and I was in the office. That once I started doing that, guess what happened? Can you have any assumptions on that? <laughs> I was shocked at the uptick of people that called asking for help. And it dawned on me, in some form or fashion, there must be some kind of directory out there for people that when they need help, they figure out who offers help. And I don't know how they keep in touch with each other. I don't know how that works. But there was a significant increase of people who started asking for help to the point where I couldn't afford to keep helping them. And I, I made the connections, and I, I said, all right, I, I can no longer help. And I said, look, guys, I just don't have the money. Sorry. Couldn't help you anymore. Once I stopped saying no, guess what happened? The call stopped. So whatever, whatever form of communication they were using, they got, the word got out, oh, they're not helping anymore. I was still bothered by it. I just couldn't afford to do it anymore. And then as I got older, I began to recognize, not in all cases, often a lot of people are in these situations because of choices they've made, self-destructive choices. And giving them food, giving them a meal, doesn't necessarily get them out of their self-destruction. Now, the issue is, you go too far down that road, you never help anyone. Because <laughs> then you could say, well, everyone, everyone's choices are the cause of where they find themselves. I, I get where you could find yourself there. I don't believe that is a Christian place to land on that matter. But I also understand the other extreme side of, of help everyone, and at some point you're enabling people to keep making poor choices. I understand the extreme of both, and I believe that Christians very rarely should find themselves extreme in any manner. Even the book of Ecclesiastes says, don't be overwise. <laughs> Don't be over-righteous. Don't be extremely righteous or extremely wise. I mentioned Sunday morning what that means. It doesn't mean don't have more wisdom. It means don't come up with things that you claim are wisdom above and beyond even what God's word says. That you're now schooling Christians and saying, well, actually, this is, this is, this is the correct answer. And you could say, really? Can you show me that in God's word? No, no, I just know that's right. You know, that's overwise. You are now correcting people, not with the truth, but with your truth, claiming it as truth. That's overwise. Overrighteous in a similar idea, we'd be saying, actually, this is wrong. Really? Can you show me in God's word? No, it's wrong because I believe it's wrong. Because I've made it wrong. They're overrighteous. They're now attaching... Uh, what is morally wrong or right, attaching to it their own philosophy, claiming it as a moral. That's overly righteous. So extreme in almost anything is a problem for a Christian. I could tell you one area where it's not. Extreme service to God. We're not talking about extreme righteousness where you're creating things, uh, your own definition of right or wrong. No, extreme service to God, extreme uh, dedication and commitment to whatever God wants. That's a good thing. But there's not many good things that come out of extreme. And so I've realized there is a balance. And I'm, I'm, I, I believe that Meriden Hills is, is definitely heading to that balance, attaining in some form that balance, our love for the community, our desire to be a help to those who are hurting and suffering on a broader sense, but not just handing out cash to everyone who calls. Because then you're extreme, and I believe on the side of enabling a lot of people. There has to be some balance. Well, unfortunately, this poor man doesn't seem to have anyone who had that balance in his life. So he's eating scraps. Was this poor man poor because of his own choices? We don't know, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Christ in no way condemns this man. He actually states the man 
uh, goes to heaven, which implies his spiritual condition was in a healthy place, regardless of his poor physical condition. He's full of sores, desiring to be fed. Uh, We're told the dogs came and licked his sores. So what's the point of that? Well, other than the fact that it's nasty, this guy was so poor, he couldn't afford basic medical help. Whatever physicians were in the town wouldn't even give him the time of day, let alone assist him in any way. His physicians were the dogs who would lick his sores. And if you know anything about animals, animals, yes, of course, there is bacteria in the mouths of animals, but obviously there are, uh, at least it's been stated to me, you know, animals actually have things in their saliva that, that kill a lot of bacteria because they do eat so many nasty things. And so this uh, saliva of the animals in some way assisted the man when they licked his sores. That was his medical help. That's how bad off this guy was. Christ is just trying to paint for us a picture of the extreme uh, poor condition this man found himself in his life. But in verse 22, he dies. When he dies, the angels take him to Abraham's bosom. So that's an interesting phrase there, Abraham's bosom, right? Where is Abraham's bosom? Is that heaven? Is that where we go when we die? Do we go to Abraham's bosom? The Bible tells us in, uh, later, after Christ dies himself in the epistles, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Except in this passage, it seems that the angels don't take him to God's presence. They take him to Abraham's presence. The Old Testament saints implies, obviously, Moses and others are there, but it's named after Abraham. I don't believe that Abraham's bosom is the same location as the, the presence of God. Well, that seems odd, right? You've heard religions and stories of the various levels of hell and the various levels of heaven, whether it's purgatory and then the real heaven or various stages of heaven for those who are really good got the higher tier and those not so good went to some lower form of heaven. I mean, is that what the Bible is stating here? No. I do not believe there's tiers of heaven. I believe that when you consider hell, we know that there is a lake of fire. We know that the lake of fire is the eternal location, the eternal state that those unsaved will find themselves in the future, not now. If you know your Bible, you know that people who die in their sins are not going to the lake of fire now. How do we know that? The book of Revelation tells us that God, at the the final book of Revelation, says that he gathered together death and hell, and they were judged and placed in the lake of fire. They were taken from hell and placed in the lake of fire, which means there are two places of eternal judgment for the unsaved. The first one, hell, and they will remain there until the great white throne judgment, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is after the seven years tribulation, which is after the rapture. So rapture, tribulation, thousand years, great white throne, and then all of those who've been in hell this whole time will go in the lake of fire for the rest of eternity. Two locations for the eternally judged. So I think it seems logical, especially with this passage, that there are two locations for the eternally blessed. The first location, Abraham's bosom, referred to as paradise. And the Old Testament saints, those who are saved and died before Christ rose from the dead, went here. And then, once Christ died on the cross, completed the covenant that he made with those that that the Messiah would come and rescue from their sins and completed that, and then conquered death, he says, he led captivity captive. I believe that's in reference to taking the saints out of Abraham's bosom and bringing them to the presence of God in heaven, the second permanent eternal blessing for believers. So when we die now, we don't go to Abraham's bosom. There's no holding place for Christians now. That's been emptied out. Christ has already taken them from Abraham's bosom, brought them to heaven. Now we would just go directly to heaven. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in the New Testament, Absent from the body is present with the Lord. So you could say we skip over that. I'm glad for that. Let me clarify why this is important. Because not just Lazarus dies. Who else dies? The rich man dies. 
We're told that the rich man, in verse 23, or verse 22, he dies and was buried, verse 23, and in hell lifted up his eyes. Now, a couple things. No angels greeted him at his death. No angels transported him. He died, woke up, and he's in hell. Whereas for the, for the, for the man Lazarus, he died, and immediately upon spiritual awakeness, greeted by the glory of angels. And these angels direct him to where he goes. There's no wandering lost. There's no lost souls wandering where they go. No, if you're saved, the angels take you. If you're unsaved, you wake up in hell. The rich man wakes up, and what's very intriguing to me is he says, and we see in verse 23, lifted up, uh, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Which means hell had a view of paradise. What a torment that must have been. As bad as hell was, how much worse to see the other side and not be able to get there. But then begs the question, how did that impact those in paradise? <laughs> when they were in paradise, they also saw those that were in hell and are talking to each other. Now, if this is a parable, then maybe in reality there was no actual, actual conversation. Maybe you can't have a conversation. The parable is talking about some metaphorical conversation that could have been had if it was able to be had. So that's a possibility, but I'm coming from the point of view that I think it's real. Therefore, a conversation was had. How tormenting is that? So this rich man, his request is give me some water. Not even get me out. Just give me some water, just a small drop of water. The rich man recognizes he's not getting out. He just asks for some form of comfort. Abraham responds in verse 25 and says, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. There's no way for us to give you any comfort. We can't bring anything to you. We can't throw it across the gulf. You can't harm us. We can't help you. Now, at this time, if someone dies and goes to hell, all they see is an empty paradise. There's no one to speak to. There's no Abraham to greet them across the way and give them truth. <laughs> they just see an empty place that is so much better than hell that they can't get to. And that empty place is empty because those that once were there are in even a better place, heaven. The torment of hell, in my opinion, isn't so much the physical, although that is there. It is most definitely inclusive of the emotional and spiritual torment that someone will feel for eternity. I've said this before. When you consider hell, you're only left with a few choices. Immediately stop thinking about it because it bothers you. Believe something unscriptural, like, well, no one goes to hell. Very few go to hell. Or, as long as you believe in a God, you won't go to hell. You know, come up with some unscriptural, unbiblical theology to give yourself peace in believing that only the really, really, really bad people go to hell. Or, do something about it. I've chosen for my life to do something about it. That's my heart. Now, how does teaching math to a bunch of 10th graders who don't want to learn geometry, how does that accomplish my heart of keeping people from hell? How does coaching basketball for a bunch of players who enjoy the game but maybe don't put in the work that's required to actually win as many games. How does coaching basketball accomplish that mission? I'll tell you. I was driving in the car recently with some of the players, some of the guys who was taking them to practice. It was uh, not enough for me to have the whole van, so we were in my car. We could actually have a conversation because they were all right around me. We're driving to the YMCA, and math came up. 
And I was joking. I said to one student, yeah, you're getting a really good grade in math. One of the best grades you've gotten in a long time in math. And that student said, yeah, you know, I remember you teaching us in seventh grade. The student's now in 10th grade. And he said, I remember in seventh grade we were struggling, and then we went to eighth grade, and then you started teaching eighth grade math. We were still struggling. And then he said, I remember I went to ninth grade, and you started teaching us Ninth grade math, and you had not taught ninth grade math before. And he says, now you're here in 10th grade. He says, I, I've realized you're following our class, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm following your class. That's true. It's pretty, I mean, most people already figured that out. But yes, I'm following your class. And um, the conversation went into why I was following his class. And he said, I, it, he said, I enjoy learning under you, Pastor Russ. He says, it's easier for me to learn math under you. We didn't get much deeper in the conversation. We parked and walked to the YMCA and played basketball. But the point is this. Can you just start knocking on random doors and tell people there is a heaven, there is a hell, where are you going? They could say they don't care. You could wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next door and spend your whole life doing that. Could you do that? Yes, you can. And many do. Not as many in 2023 as it was in 2010. <laughs> pre-pandemic pre, pre, uh, even, right? Uh, with the pandemic, I think this idea of going to someone's house unannounced is even more taboo than it was five years ago. But it's still done. And you can feel better about yourself saying, I am accomplishing my mission. I'm giving a people a chance to accept Christ. Although most won't talk to me, although most slam the door in my face, they had their chance. Sure, I get it. I actually commend it. I think that that's commendable, that people take valuable time out of their day, a true love for the lost to do such a thing. I'm just not convinced it's such a great chance. This idea that I gave them a chance, really, it's like someone drowning in an ocean. And you say, here's a stick. Hope you have a great chance with that. As opposed to getting in the ocean with them and helping them out. Now, obviously, you can't save them, but I will tell you this. People are a whole lot more likely to hear what you have to say, not just hear it, but apply it when they see that you love them, when you are connected to them. Going back to my story about this young man, I've seen a lot of students over the 10 years I've been here grow. Not all, but a lot. And it's not purely due to them just getting older. <laughs> a lot of the growth that I see are from students whose eyes are opened to the realization that they're loved. Once a student at an age, especially in high school, sees that truth, almost inevitably, I see growth, spiritual growth and maturity in their life. They really start embracing the truths that are given to them. I have the opportunity to teach Bible to them every day. I have... 50 students in this room every day. I have no assistance. I don't have a second teacher in here keeping them quiet. They willingly, every day, listen to me, teach for 30 to 40 minutes Bible. Why? Because I taught them math. Because I followed them. Because I was there for them in the, what some would say, unnecessary times. What's the point times? But because I was there, when I was teaching something valuable, they listened. That is my heart. And that is how I am accomplishing the mission that I have. I don't want to forget that there's a hell. And I don't want to pretend and create some lie about hell to make myself feel better. I know there's a hell. And I want to do something about it. But I've also recognized that the greatest way, the greatest chance I can give someone to see Christ is to let them see Christ through me in more than just one brief 60-second connection. I want to give them a real chance. So I will invest years into their life. I will give them months of my life. I will give them hours. Whatever I can do, I will give them. Not because math will save them, but math will show them that I care about them. And then they will listen to me on the things that really matter. That's my method of doing something about hell. You don't reach nearly as many people going door to door, 
every weekend, sure, you could potentially reach hundreds of homes if you're really dedicated and a good walker. But are you really giving those hundreds of homes a chance? I don't think so. I'd rather give 50 people a really good chance than 1,000 a small chance. That's my opinion. That's my philosophy. Not necessarily in the Bible. You could take it for what it's worth. But this rich man, whatever chances he was given, didn't take them. And so here he is in hell. He then says in verse 27, I pray thee, therefore, father. Interesting how he's referring to Abraham as his father, even though he's obviously a reprobate, rebellious soul. That thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Then, of course, the request continues, I don't want them coming to this place of torment. And Abraham responds, they have the Bible, they got the prophets, they got the truth. If they're searching for it, they can find it. If they won't believe the Bible and the prophets, what makes you think they'll believe someone coming back from the dead? You can say, oh, come on, Russ. Like, literally, someone coming back from the dead? Who wouldn't believe that? Uh, well, obviously quite a few. When you recognize that Lazarus, not this Lazarus, but the friend of Christ, Lazarus, came back from the dead. When you recognize that, when you recognize that the widow's son was brought back from the dead, when you recognize Christ himself came back from the dead, and what was said about Christ, at least we know about Christ. Ah, it was a fake. He never actually died. Or the disciples moved his body or buried it somewhere else and are making up lies. Even today, it's denied. What was said about Lazarus? We're actually not told what was said about Lazarus. We can assume similar things might have been stated. Lazarus never actually really died. He just took a nap in that tomb for three days. We don't know anything that was said about the widow's son. But obviously, people weren't having revival, coming to Christ in the droves, because shortly after Lazarus, they put him on the cross and kill him. So someone coming back from the dead did not convince the lost of the truth. So Christ is, is reminding us of that reality in this story. Abraham states, someone coming back from the dead doesn't save people. They'll just come up with another way to keep doing what they're doing and excuse the truth, deny it for what it is. The world has truth. If you want to give them a chance at embracing it, connect with them on a deeper level than a quick conversation. Let them get to know you, see Christ through you, and you are giving them the best chance to embrace him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word, the chance to be reminded of hell. It is a disturbing thought to consider that so many would be tormented for eternity. And I pray that we would be disturbed on a level deep enough to cause change, that we would actually do something about it. Seek to further your kingdom with the time that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great night. We'll continue our conversation on the life of Christ next Wednesday.